2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Galina Lmorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the BFL in Switzerland, and will be a host today. Today, we'll be talking to Charles Foster about the new book, Being a Human, Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness. What kind of creature is a human? If we don't know what we are, how can we know how to act? In Being a Human... Charles Foster sets out to understand what a human is, inhabiting the sensory worlds of humans at three pivotal moments in our history. Well, Charles, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here, Galina. Thank you.
2: So I would like to start by asking, how has this pandemic affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience so far?
1: Well, I feel very embarrassed about saying it, um, knowing that so many people have had such a horrible time, but... The pandemic has allowed me to get a lot more writing done than I otherwise have done. It's like has been the case with so many people, slowed me down. It's made me watch the the little things just around the corner, the local things which I normally uh, zoom past. Um, It's made me recalibrate. Um, It's made me appreciate family, people simple things. It's slowed down the fizzing business in my mind. Um, and it's taught me quite a lot about human beings as well, uh, which hasn't always been great. Um, but um, I think I know a lot more about the sort of creature that I am and the sort of creature that my fellow human beings are.
2: So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: I'm an academic at the University of Oxford. Um, I write for my living for uh, most of the time. Um, I am a veterinarian by background, um, a passionate naturalist. I grew up in Yorkshire in the north of England, right on the cusp of the neon lights of suburbia and the howling wilderness um, at the top of our road. Um, The natural world has um, always been my passion, and I've been uh, obsessed for ever really, with the possibility of, of entering minds other than my own. So the brain of Charles Foster is a very echoingly lonely place. And I've wondered often how possible it is to understand what's going on inside anyone else's head. So that's been a, a motivating force through lots of my life in um, working out what I should write, what I should inquire into.
2: And along your journey, uh, were there mentors that really supported you along the way?
1: I've had some enormously um, inspirational and sacrificial teachers. So uh, there's a veterinary surgeon called John Cooper, um, wild about the wild, um, uh, uh, um, rather eccentric, um, a collector of facts and artefacts, Um, who um, persuaded me that uh, there was a real virtue in being an old-fashioned naturalist, um, a a generalist, um, who could make connections between lots of different domains. Um, He taught me that it wasn't intellectually disreputable uh, to be interested in lots of things rather than a tiny niche. Um, Another uh, veterinary surgeon, uh, a, a deer farmer called John Fletcher in Scotland, um, again, as a rather piratical, swashbuckling uh, approach to um, to science, who sees it as an adventure, um, in the way that it was originally seen in the Enlightenment. Um, so these people and and many others have given very generously of their time and their wisdom and their patience, and have uh, seeded and fostered in me this uh, this this great thirst for relationship with. The non human world.
2: And you look into some of the really complex ideas and fields. Were you ever intimidated?
1: I'm intimidated constantly. Um, Unless we're intimidated, we're not being ambitious enough, I think. Um, Unless we're intimidated, we're not being humble enough. Um, So, yes, this this book, uh, Being a Human, looks at the question what is a human being? It's the most hubristic question to ask. even angels um, don't know the answer to that question. Um, so, uh, yes, at, at every step of this inquiry, I wonder what on earth am I doing? Um, how can I be arrogant enough to answer uh, this question? How can I be arrogant enough to, even to ask the the question? Um, but it does seem to me to be an important thing to ask. Um, I'm a human being, and I want to know what sort of creature I am. Um, and uh, unless I have some idea what sort of animal I am, how can I behave properly? How can I learn how to thrive?
2: And what would you tell our younger listeners and early career researchers who might be a little bit unsure about tackling such big problems?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I have anything to teach anybody else, um, Many authors will tell you that their books are written for themselves, um, and that's true for me, I think, too. Uh, but tackling big problems, I would say that the maxim is don't get it right, get it wrote. <laughs> get something down on paper, get something down on your computer without obsessing about whether it's elegant. I would say see writing as a job, just like anything else, rather than a, a romantic pursuit. So get to your desk at a specified time and don't get up from your desk uh, um, until you've done a requisite number of words or got to the end of a particular section. And don't be afraid to ask the real questions. Don't think that the business of scholarship is just the business of adding footnote to footnote, which is um, very often how the academic project in particular is seen.
2: So your latest book is Being a Human Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness. Can you tell us how did you come to writing it?
1: I'm a human being. I didn't know what sort of a creature a human being was. Um, In order to work out how to be a decent friend, husband, father, um, I had to work out uh, what a human being was. Uh, So that's the motivation behind this inquiry. Um, And the way that I chose to do this was by going back in time. We can't know where we are or what we are unless and until we know where we've come from. So I went back and I tried imaginatively to inhabit three pivotal moments in the history of the evolution of human consciousness. Uh, The first of those was the Upper Paleolithic, um, about, say, 45 50,000 years ago, when behaviorally modern consciousness, the sort of consciousness that we now have, uh, f- is first seen in the archaeological record, when we were hunter-gatherers, wanderers, had a very intimate relationship with the natural world. Uh, the second period was the Neolithic. Um, the times vary according to where you are in the world, but it's the time when we stopped wandering when we became farmers settlers, and our relationship with the natural world changed uh, and the third was jumping very f- much further forward in time to uh, very close to our own period so the enlightenment so the uh, the eighteenth century um, period when it was thought that human reason could solve all problems uh, when uh, Inquirers saw themselves as released from the restraints of medieval superstition, as they saw it, where there was a new spirit of inquiry. And as we may come on to discuss, I think that that spirit of inquiry quickly became suffocated, uh, producing some of the ills that we see in the modern world. But that was was the method and those were the moments that I uh, tried to um, inhabit.
2: I found it's a really unique way uh, to look at human consciousness uh, throughout ages. So can we start from the very basics and can you tell us how do you define consciousness?
1: Well, it's a big debate, isn't it? But uh, I, I would define consciousness as something like a sense of self, a sense of subjectivity. It's that which allows me to say, I am Charles Foster, you are Galena. We are different beings. It's the thing which um, allows us to have real relationships. Um, I can't have uh, a relationship with you unless I acknowledge the differences between us. And um, I can't acknowledge the differences between us unless I have a sense of what I am, and therefore a sense of what you're not. Um, um, So it's the ability to put it another way to use personal pronouns. Um, in a in a coherent way, it's the ability to hover outside your own skull and look down at yourself and say, "Yeah, that's me."
2: So, where in our history did you decide to begin? So,
1: uh, about fifty thousand years ago. But in order to make sense of that story, we have to um, roll the film back uh, rather further. So, about two hundred thousand years ago, we see. Uh, animals wandering the planet who are anatomically identical to us. Uh, They have brains the same size as ours, perhaps slightly larger, in fact, and bodies identical to ours. They appear to have the same uh, neurological hardware and software as we have, but they don't act in the same way that we do. And then, about 50,000 years ago, these bodies started to behave differently they started to behave more or less as we do. They have the same sense of, of self, the same use of pronouns insofar as we can construe that from the archaeological record as we do. You see um, representations of the human form in the archaeological record for the first time, which shout out, this is me. Um, so me, 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 I, I, I. And if you have a me, if you have an I, and therefore a you, you can start to tell stories. In fact, you compulsively tell stories. Um, So it's at that the birth of pronouns, the birth of the I, the birth of stories which we would recognize um, that I I began uh, the quest which is contained in this book.
2: So, was this time uh, tightly linked to the social? aspect of our nature?
1: So the social aspect of our nature is something which is facilitated by this appreciation of our of ourself. Um, probably at the time of the early Upper Paleolithic, which is the time I'm talking about, um, we live for most of the year as small, wandering um, hunter-gatherer bands. There were probably larger clans. Uh, with whom language was shared, with whom some cultural uh, characteristics were shared. But basically, the the unit was the family uh, and uh, slightly larger conglomerations. We know from Robin Dunbar's work that uh, we don't work well Uh, in communities more than about 150. 150 is Dunbar's number. We just don't have the processing power to deal with um, relationships functionally if we have uh, bands more than about 150. And certainly in the Upper Paleolithic, uh, we were in small functional units.
2: So was it predominantly the hunter-gatherer communities during this time?
1: Yes, farming hadn't started then, or the management of land hadn't started on a wholesale um, scale at that point. So the, the pattern of life was one which required the people to be supreme naturalists, to know which berries would be on which bush um, at which season, to know when the caribou were going to sweep through the land. Know when the hare was going to be there. Um, know when the polar bear was uh, was going to appear over the hill. Um, it required many more skills than hunt than farmers um, had. Um, farmers deal with a few species, um, and as we may come on to discuss, the the, the business of farming means that uh, you're dealing with species who are necessarily tamer, who are dumbed down versions of themselves. Um, So yes, wandering hunter-gatherers with an intermittent, sometimes clairvoyant connection with the natural world.
2: So what are some of the most notable developments in uh, human consciousness uh, from this time?
1: Well, The things that we see in the archaeological record are these representations of the human form. Um, We see are some of the best um, representative art that I think there has ever been, and that includes the wonders of the Italian Renaissance. So we see those glorious cave paintings, um, particularly in uh, southern Europe, although I'm sure there's much more to be found in Africa. Um, I'm sure the story happened much earlier in Africa uh, than it did over here. But we also see um, uh, uh, an understanding that Life doesn't end with physical death. We see religion. We see evidence of shamanic shuttling between worlds. We see um, an acknowledgement that the agency, which is there in everything in the world, including rocks, um, continues after the death of human individuals and probably after the death of animal individuals too, um, which makes feeding a very difficult thing to do. Um, it's often been said that hunter-gatherers who believe that everything in the world is unsold face um, a great uh, liturgical problem whenever they want a meal, because having a meal involves killing something and desoling something. And if you don't do it right, if you don't do it with the relevant respect, um, that thing might come back to haunt you. So there's a, a moral seriousness about the act of eating. There's a moral seriousness about the rituals which go with, with everything which life entails. You have to ask permission for the caribou uh, to be killed. You have to say sorry to the caribou when you've killed it. Um, you have to broker relationships with the creatures in the other worlds to, who, to which these souls have gone. It was an understanding that the visible world was not the only world that um, there is. Uh, We now know that human neural networks are capable of processing um, 11 different dimensions. That's uh, the four that we normally operate in, so three spatial dimensions plus time and the rest. So We're wired up for much more than we normally recognize, Um, and it seems that Upper Paleolithic people um, had techniques, um, maybe uh, plant hallucinogen-induced or physiological stress-induced ways of getting to these other dimensions in which they believed uh, that uh, the dead resided. Um, but their world was, although we characterized it as a simple one, a much more complex, multi layered one than the, uh, the one that we operate in um, and required um, much more choreography um, in order to negotiate it.
2: It's truly fascinating. And I was really surprised when you pointed out that during this time, uh, gather, hunter gatherers had time for leisure time. And this is something where they could sort of stop and slow down and reflect on what they have been
0: doing yeah,
1: um so all the evidence from modern hunter gatherer communities suggest that um uh, being a hunter gatherer is uh, a much more leisurely occupation than being a farmer uh you if you're an efficient informed hunter gatherer probably don't have to. Um, work for more than half daylight hours. If you're a farmer, you typically have to work um, for much longer hours than that. That's one of the many reasons why um, human communities have to be coerced either by climate change or uh, oppressive uh, overseers or whatever into the sedentary farming uh, lifestyles, which we think are the way that all civilized people should um, exist, but because they had leisure um, and because they had this sense of self, uh, all the evidence suggests that they began to tell great stories about themselves um stories which made sense of of their place on the planet, uh, their destiny after their deaths uh, the purpose f- for the whole created order. So some of the most fecund uh, creation myths, um, those myths which have great explanatory power and great reassuring power, come from hunter-gatherer communities. The, the general trend um, of story, I think, is of simplification as we come Uh, nearer to the point where we are today. There's been a gradual dumbing down of the stories that we tell ourselves. So now, what is the story that we tell ourselves about what we are? That we are economically significant entities, uh, homo economicus, um, that the only good narrative or the only coherent narrative is the narrative of the free market. A pathetic, demeaning story, and no wonder we don't find it satisfying. Uh, The old stories are better. We've got to get back to them.
2: It sounds like Upper Paleolithic is the time of uh, when imagination was born.
1: It was the time when imagination was born. It was the time when imagination flourished, as it it has rarely flourished uh, ever since. Um, I'm often accused of being rather romantic towards... Uh, the hunter-gatherers who I've encountered Um, I don't think romantics romantic is an indictment I regard it as a high compliment Um, but but certainly I think it is true that there there was a a greater degree of thriving even as we um, define it in our narrow way today amongst those communities um, they reflected, they loved, they saw themselves as operating on many levels rather than just the, the level of economic drudgery. Um, they had uh, relationships which were really meaningful with not only other human beings, but also with the whole of the created order. The animals and the plants were their friends. It was a much less lonely place than the uh, the world that we occupy now.
2: So, as we move towards Neolithic age, um, what has changed?
1: At the Neolithic, we stopped moving, and when we stop moving, uh, it's disastrous. If red blood cells stop going through your coronary arteries, you die. If water stops running through a river, it sludges up and gets stagnant and starts stinking. And that is more or less what happened to us. So we decided to trade the freedom of wandering the wide world. We decided to trade the freedom of living off thousands of species for the convenience of having a few tame species in the back garden. So we built walls across the land, which had previously been uh, an entirely untrammeled place, um, and those walls ended up imprisoning us far more than they imprisoned uh, the animals that we were trying to uh, keep um, in a convenient place. We also built walls across our own minds. So we uh, started to have the Suffocating categories, the compartments across our own brains, which mean that we are now literally uh, mm. non integrated people so uh, sure we've all experienced it. We can live in one compartment for one moment and then live in another compartment of our minds in another without the two really communicating with one another. I think that's an artifact of what happened to us in the neolithic um, s- So what the archaeological record says is that uh, we became farmers. And with farming came lots of things which are pretty dreadful. So we see epidemic disease for the first time in human populations as a result of the population explosion that grain uh, allowed. We see the diseases of, of production. We see... Arthritic diseases in the women who sit there grinding the corn all day. We see the birth of really toxic status and hierarchy. In a hunter gatherer community, it was uh, fairly egalitarian. The women typically uh, gathered the berries um, and the men typically went out hunting, although those uh, divisions were rather blurred. But the berries were more important. It wasn't possible for the men to uh, think that they were the only or the main important um, providers. Uh, in farming communities that's rather different. It's easy for men to get the delusion because they're out there in the fields doing the the uh, seeding and the harvesting to think that they are the really important hunter gatherers and the, the really important providers and the women who um, do the work at home of of grinding and, and homekeeping are are less important. So you see divisions between the sexes of a really poisonous kind for the first time in that period. Um, You see human on human violence on a big scale for the first time. Um, That's because you have uh, all your eggs in one basket, sometimes almost literally. So you have the possibility of harvests failing. Um, In the hunter-gatherer world, if One area failed, you went on to another. If in uh, a Neolithic farming community your harvest failed, um, you had to go across the valley and get corn at the end of a flint-tipped spear from your neighbours. You have war. So I I said before that um, we typically see that uh, people need to be pushed into farming from hunter-gatherer life and, and this transition from hunter-gatherer life to uh, farming life didn't happen quickly it wasn't the revolution that it's um, in the past been represented as being it happened very gradually and so far as we can see rather reluctantly um, compelled by climate by climate change probably the, the cooling of the world at the time of uh, time of the lower drys.
2: So how, how did communities manage to pull themselves out of this uh, stump development of the human consciousness, if I can put it this way?
1: Um, it's, a big, it's a big question why free people chose to do this, um, how they chose, why they chose to, to be prisoners of their own minds, prisoners of their own self-built walls. Um, to have minds which were constrained by concepts and by fences in a way that uh, they hadn't previously been. And we don't know why that was, um, other than to say, as I've just said, climate change forced it on them. But I I think that there is something going on here which is endemic to the human condition, and and that is that we're not really as fundamentally attached to freedom as we like to think. I think we've seen that over COVID. Um, you know, we are fearful people who will trade a bit of, uh, trade a lot of freedom for a, a little bit of security. We have this ontological insecurity, which uh, means that uh, we are attached to our backyards, we're attached to our artificial certainties um, in a way which is rather demeaning. And I suspect that was part of the psychological agenda for uh, the the, the change in the way of being that happened at the time of the Neolithic non-revolution.
2: So do you think that perhaps not having the luxury of free time as much during this time before the development of... uh, agricultural, uh, uh, I don't know, things or technologies would not allow people to reflect as much as they should uh, have on what was going Uh, on.
1: I'm I'm sure that's part of it. Um, But uh, another part of it is that um, once you stop being a hunter-gatherer, you very quickly lose the skills which uh, allow you to be a hunter-gatherer. You forget the knowledge uh, of where the herds are going to be. You forget the knowledge of how to spear an animal. Um, Within a generation or two, those skills um, are lost, never to to come back. Also, if you um, become a a farmer, you very quickly get tied into the tyranny of supply and demand. Um, The the harvest, which you think is um, yours, actually becomes your master. Um, The profit motive um, becomes uh, a big driving force and prevents you from uh, leaving uh, your village um, in the way that you had previously uh, been free to do. And we see that all the time now in modern industrial uh, countries, don't we? Um, How free are we? We're tied down to our mortgages. We're tied down to our modes of production. Um, We work more and more for less and less. Uh, We we describe ourselves as more dissatisfied um, than we have ever been. Um, Mechanization, which is supposed to free people, um, in fact, doesn't have that effect at all. Uh, We are hours get longer and longer rather than shorter and shorter, contrary to everything that the great prophets of the, of the uh, digital revolution um, had said was going to be the case. And I, I think we see something similar to that, the very birth of farming.
2: So how do we find ourselves progressing into the Enlightenment ages?
1: Well, it's interesting you use the word progressing um, so before we, before we leave the Neolithic, it's, it's worth pointing out that perhaps the most corrosive uh, development of the Neolithic was this notion of progress. Um, it's unknown in hunter-gatherer communities. There, the pattern of things is circular, the cycle of the seasons, the cycle of the sun, the cycle of life and death essentially a circular uh, way of of perceiving the way the universe is. Um, When it comes to farming, the harvest, because of this tyranny of supply and demand, has to get bigger every year. Um, And you would describe as progress um, a bigger harvest this year than last. You see it in buildings as well. You see... Um, in the Neolithic um, times, the, the birth of uh, rectilinear buildings um, as opposed to the circular dwellings, which there are in, in previous ages. Uh, rectilinear buildings are things which you can add to very easily, which stick their elbows into the wide, uh, wild world. Um, you can add a room here, add a room there, in a way which is very difficult to do with a circular building. Anyway, so you have this idea of progress, the idea that that time is moving in a particular direction and that we are carried along in its flow. Uh, I think that the the whole notion of linear time was unknown to to hunter gatherers, and time as well as profit became tyrannous. Anyway, so to, to pick up to pick up your word, we, in inverted commas, progressed towards the enlightenment. Um. I could well be criticised for choosing to pick um, the ages that I did pick. There would be a a case for saying that I should have um, paused at the time of the Axial Age, say between 5 and 7 centuries BC, uh, when lots of the world religions were born, when there were lots of philosophical uh, discoveries um, in places like Greece and the Middle East and China and India. Um, I didn't do that because it seemed to me that there wasn't anything really tectonic about that time. Uh, what was happening was that there were there were different iterations of ideas which had been forged earlier. But anyway, um, I, I jumped then to the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries and to the Enlightenment of the 18th. And, and the background to that was that there had been uh, a perception that humans weren't as free to think as they should have been. Uh, they had been prevented from great flights of of intellectual adventure by the superstitions of, of the medieval church. Um, and so the Enlightenment said, there is nothing that cannot be thought. There is nothing that should not be thought. It was a time of, of great... Uh, scepticism, of great intellectual excitement. Um, But sadly, I think it it quickly fossilised into um, the notion that there were some things that you could believe and some things that you couldn't believe. A catechism, really, but a scientific rather than a scientific catechism. Catechism very similar to the catechisms of of the medieval church against which the Enlightenment was supposed to have been Uh, a reaction but you get another really important thing happening at that time and that was the desoulment of the world, up until that point in hunter-gatherer communities in Neolithic communities and even in uh, the Abrahamic religions there had been this idea that everything in the world had a soul there were human souls according to Aristotle and vegetable souls um, and animal souls Um, but everything had a soul Um, The Enlightenment said, no souls, there is only matter. And that was a catastrophic move, I think. Um, It was catastrophic for lots of reasons. But one is the obvious environmental impact of it. Because if you conceive everything as, as a machine, which was how the Enlightenment saw it, a machine without a soul, there's nothing obviously wrong in destroying. Uh, a machine. There is something rather obviously wrong in destroying something which has a soul. So all the environmental destruction that we now see, I think, would have been ethically impossible um, if uh, the Enlightenment hadn't asserted that there is only matter. And it was demeaning to us as well, because if uh, animals didn't have souls, eventually it was concluded that since we were animals, We didn't have souls either. We were only matter. And if we are only matter, then do we really have dignity? Are we really morally significant creatures? Lots of ills flow from the desoulment of the world. And the, the idea that there is only matter, material reductionism.
2: This is really interesting. And it sounds like in during Neolithic, we tried to tame and simplify nature and during enlightenment, at least in the beginning, people try to tame their thoughts of people.
1: Yeah, I think that puts it well.
2: So you're also right uh, that scepticism and empiricism can and must help us recover enchantment. So that's really interesting. Can you expand a little bit more on this?
1: Yeah. So lots of my friends here at the University of Oxford are scientists. and. Um, they see the scientific project as something very different from the unfettered, adventurous business that it was conceived as being at the very start of the Enlightenment. They have received certain paradigms laid down by the Enlightenment fundamentalists, um, and they see the business of their day job as trying to squeeze the facts into those paradigms. That's a really boring process. Um, There are lots of things which uh, it is thought, entirely contrary to the original Enlightenment ethos, um, cannot be thought. So it cannot be thought, for example, uh, that um, matter might have a soul. Um, The high priest of um, modern Enlightenment culture, Stephen Pinker, um, says something like, one of the great achievements of the scientific revolution was to later rest um, the delusion that the universe is saturated with purpose. Okay. Uh, regardless of whether or not we think the universe is saturated with purpose, one cannot demonstrate in a scientific way, in a laboratory, that the universe is not saturated with purpose. It is one of his fundamentalist axioms. Uh, that the universe is purposeless, that matter is all that there is, um, that uh, nothing has any intrinsic significance. Um, So what I'm objecting to in the the sentence that um, you quoted uh, was this, this sclerosing of the idea of what science should be and what science should inquire into. People are terrified of asking really fundamental questions about the natural world because um, they will not get tenure at their universities or they'll be mocked as, uh, as scientific heretics. Uh, we've got something in modern science, particularly modern biology, um, which is very like the medieval church's uh, persecution of, of its uh, scientific so-called heretics. It's different in the world of quantum physics. There, you do see um, imagination allowed to flow freely. Um, the sci- the scientific project should engage intuition and reason, um, and um, imagination. Most of our great scientific discoverers um, have not been the product just of reason; they've been the product of A a eureka moment, an aha moment. Um, So typically in mathematics, people get the answer in a flash of inspiration and then spend their professional life in their university trying to prove uh, the answer that they know intuitively to be the case. Um, That's the sort of exciting uh, business which scientific um, discovery of of all types Uh, should be. Um, So I I would love a return to the original Enlightenment idea that there are no questions that can't be asked. There are no inquiries which are illegitimate. But I don't see that in the modern biological academy particularly.
2: So where would you like us to go from here?
1: I would would like us in the scientific academy to say... No holds barred, and to acknowledge the possibility, for example, um, that uh, the insolment of an electron or the insolment of a badger is a rather more satisfactory explanation for some of the behaviour that we see in the natural world um, than the material reductionist explanation. I would like to see. Um, an acknowledgement that uh, human beings um, are intrinsic parts of the natural world and for their own sanity, for their own health, uh, for their own survival, don't we know that to be the case, um, need to broker those ancient relationships with non-humans. I think humans are very special parts of the natural world, but still they are Parts of the natural world, and I would like to see us regarding ourselves as creatures who are worth better stories than the stories that we usually tell about ourselves. Uh, What is the modern crisis? More than anything else, it's a crisis of story. We don't know where we're from. We don't know where we're going, and therefore we have no idea where we are. Um, That makes us. Uh, vertiginous, makes us uh, constantly uncertain about how to act. Um, So I do think we need to ask, uh, what sort of a creature am I? And we can get some worthwhile insights into that by uh, retracing the steps that we've taken along the human journey.
2: So in your book, we are meeting two characters. I was wondering whether we nowadays are able to empathize with people, for example, like them from Paleolithic or even Neolithic times.
1: We're the same. Um, We have the same ways of mental processing, though some of our ways have been dulled um, by what's happened to us over many millennia, separating us from our Paleolithic people. Um, Our capacity for empathy with anything Uh, whether it's uh, a squirrel or another human being, I think is much less than it was in those days. But those capacities for empathy can be and must urgently uh, be renewed. And the process of trying to empathize with something as far away from me as an upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherer or as far away from me um, in terms of biology as a badger uh, are things which are worth doing precisely because uh, there are difficulties. If I can work at empathising with them, I will increase the bulk of my empathy muscles. So I'm probably going to be more empathetic to the Syrian refugee down my street or more empathetic to my daughter when she asks for her phone back or whatever it is. It's worth working at. And these sorts of uh, thought experiments, um, anthropological method acting experiments that I've engaged in, in this book can maybe help us to do that.
2: So now, thinking about the bigger picture, what would be the key implications of exploring this question, this, these questions for our society? Well,
1: we can't know what we are unless we unless we know where we've come from. That's the main one, and. Uh, Unless we know what we are, we can't know how to behave. We can't know how to behave towards ourselves. We can't know how to behave towards the non-human world. Uh, Unless we know what sort of animals we are, we can't have functional politics. Uh, We can't have uh, functioning societies. So uh, we we are ruled by this sort of self-serving sociopaths who wouldn't survive for a moment in a hunter-gatherer community. by looking at hunter-gatherer communities, we can uh, expose uh, more clearly, in a way which obviously needs to happen, the inadequacies of our, of our present um, political and um, social leadership. And we can learn how to be better friends and less unsatisfactory fathers.
2: Do you think this also would help us to be in able to be kinder to our future selves or our children when it comes, for example, to climate change, where it's so difficult to imagine human society 100 years from now.
1: Yeah. Well, kindness is such an important word here. Um, What I discovered in this book was that kindness is the most fundamental human characteristic. Um, it's a characteristic which we can learn from the wild kindness um, of the non human world, um, and which is generated by all relationships between people who know what sort of creatures they are and where they come from and where they're going. Um, I, I, one of the, the things about hunter gatherer communities is that they have this idea that the agency of the dead increases. They've got this idea that um, the, the, the people who aren't there as live creatures amongst them are nonetheless enormously important. Um, and that, that would imply that future persons are enormously important. We have no regard most of the time to future persons in our, in our politics or our, um, our decision making. That would be regarded as appalling for hunter-gatherers. The way in which we treat the non-human world, which, of course, has a, a direct impact on those future persons, would be regarded by um, hunter-gatherers as, as, frankly, psychopathic. Um, so we can learn lots of lessons from this uh, This look back at our past on the sort of creatures that we are, the sort of creatures we need to be um, in order to survive, um, and we need to be kind creatures with... Um, a view to our our children and our grandchildren rather than just our bank balances.
2: So how close do you think you came to figuring out what it means to be a human?
1: Well, it would be absurd for me to say that I know what a human being is. Um, but this inquiry taught me some things about what the lowest common denominators of being a human are. About uh what some of the, the quintessential characteristics are, and they 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 taught me about what makes me happy, and what makes me miserable. Um, so, how close did I come to answering that question, that biblical question, "What is man that thou art mindful of him?" Well, not very close, uh, but um, I think I think even a little bit of progress. Which is all the progress that I made is is worthwhile um, and I'd encourage anybody to to have the temerity to to ask that question and to to try to answer it in whatever way they can because we only get one chance for, uh, per person to decide what we are um, and the the question "What are you is a really urgent one which affects not just you and your own. Happiness, but the happiness of uh, everyone around you and ultimately the destiny of the planet. So it's hard to imagine a more urgent and important inquiry.
2: Would you be tempted to ask uh, the question next of what's it like to be a bat?
1: Well, this is Thomas Nagel's great question, and I, I think it's, uh, it's often misquoted. Um, it's, it's a question which is supposed to point up... Um, the nature of consciousness. Is it like anything um, to, to be a bat? It was his question in relation to the, the question, uh, is a bat conscious? Um, uh, in a previous book, Being a, being a Beast, um, I try to inhabit the sensory worlds of various non-human creatures. Um, that wasn't the same sort of inquiry as this one. I wasn't trying to find out what sort of creatures they were. I was trying to find out what it was like to look at a wood through a badger's nose, um, what it's like to inhabit a, a, an olfactory landscape, um, what it's like to take slices of time through your nose, sometimes millions of years at a time when you. Uh, sniff uh, a London park and get odor molecules um, from carboniferous limestone as well as from the uh, rubber of the person who's walked over it a few minutes before. Um, that that again was uh, an inquiry which um, helped me to um, flex my empathy muscles and made me uh, a slightly, I hope, I'd ask my wife about this, a slightly less unsatisfactory um, husband and father. Um, And I'd encourage encourage anyone to to do anything which gets them out of their own heads um, and into the heads of anything other than themselves, whether it's a badger or uh, an embattled refugee.
2: So did you manage to recover the enchantment?
1: There were lots of moments when I sat in a wood, having divested myself of lots of the modern thoughts, this cognitive tinnitus, which is always hissing in our heads. When I was able, I think, to narrow the distance between me and the tree between me and the deer um, and to hear the voices of somebody other than myself which was the purpose of this and those voices are enchanting
2: well this has been truly a thought-provoking discussion so can you let us know what are you currently working on and what's next for you
1: Well, thank you very much. I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for your probing questions, which have uh, forced me to look again at lots of my own conclusions. (laughs) Um, The next book out is um, a book called The Siege, which is a book of short stories um, about various uh, mammals and birds and fish. And the idea of that book is that Huge concepts like climate change or mass extinction are just too big for us to get our heads around, and therefore we don't relate to them viscerally, emotionally, in the way that's necessary for us to make the the changes which are so desperately needed. So, in order to feel the the things which we should be feeling about climate change, um, we Shouldn't bombard ourselves all the time with the horrifying statistics. We've got to see how climate change affects uh, the eel round the corner, or the fox trotting up and down the street outside. So this is a this is a series of of stories which try to make things little local accessible because we are little local accessible people ourselves. Um, so that's, that's the current project.
2: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your books?
1: Well, the book um, is published um, in the UK by Profile Books and by Metropolitan Books um, in the US. And there are uh, a number of foreign language translations um, either pending or out. So there's, there's one out already in Dutch and a number of other Translations will be out very shortly. Um, There's a website, um, www.charlesfoster.co.uk, and that has a list of um, all my publications and uh, links to blogs and so on where I sound off about these and other matters. If anyone's really interested in hearing still more of what Charles Foster has to say, which I doubt.
2: Oh boy, I'm sure they will. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much.